Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 78 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation that was originally recorded on the Two Teachers Talk Business podcast. The guys were kind enough to have me on a few weeks ago, and I really enjoyed the conversation so much to the point that I always wanted to share it here. And now is the perfect time for me to share it because, to be honest, I'm struggling to stay awake right now from what I think is vaccine side effect fatigue. So here we go. In the next two hours, two hours because it's a long one, you're going to learn how I first discovered that I have an interest in business, why I think that aimlessly sending people to university is actually bad news for all of us, where my attitude of resilience and positivity comes from, how and where I find mentors, even if those people who I consider my mentors don't actually know that they are, and so much more. This is my favourite podcast I've ever appeared on. We spoke for well over two hours and we definitely could have gone for much longer if it wasn't getting late into the night. Alex and Drew are great guys. They have a really great podcast and I really think that you're going to enjoy this one. But just before then, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening right now. There are so many more great conversations just like this one coming your way and I don't want you to miss them. But in the meantime, here it is, episode number 78 of Life and Lessons with, well, me. So first question then, Sean, welcome anyway. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in business so far. Sure. So I was always that kid um, in business studies who sat at the front, who put my hand up for every question, who wanted to answer everything right, Um, but never really listened in any other subject in school. And so from a young age, I thought actually business is probably something that I have an interest in. Back when I was like 12 or 13, I tried to run a basketball team despite being like literally five foot tall. Like I was not built for basketball. Um, but I would like get guys together on my estate, bring them together, try and build this thing. And I realized quickly at that very, very young age that it wasn't basketball that I had a passion for. It was kind of organizing and building something. And so there I was sat at the front of business studies and there was a guy sat next to me called Lewis and we kind of got talking. We realized that we both enjoyed the idea of running a business, but we didn't know what we wanted to do. We were like 14 years old at the time. And so just around the time when I turned 15, for whatever reason, um, I suggested the idea that we start a magazine. I'm from a small town in Northamptonshire called Corby. And Corby had always had this bad reputation. Uh, Since the steelworks closed down in the town, there was mass unemployment. It was looked at generally as a bit of a shithole. Like it was up there as uh, one of the top 10 worst towns to live in. And so there we were in school as these kids from Corby who would constantly have people tell us that Corby's terrible. So we thought, why don't we start a magazine about Corby, about the regeneration, about all of the stuff that was going on. Uh, and we creatively named it Corby magazine. And um, <laughs> again, it was one of those ones where I realized I never really had an interest in editorial nor design or any of the things that were actually needed to build the magazine, but more just the doing, the going out there, the selling, the talking to business owners, the convincing these middle-aged men to hand over cash to these two kids who turned up at the doorstep of their balloon shop trying to sell them adverts. And so that went really well. We made a bit of money. 
definitely more money than most 15 year olds are making at the time. Uh, we bumped into a man called Ian who had worked in PR for about 20 years and he decided to use us as a bit, as a bit of a case study. And so he wrote out this little press release and called us the world's youngest publishers. And we expected like maybe the local radio station to pick up on it. But fortunately, unfortunately for us, depending on how you look at it, Ian was incredibly good at his job. And so uh, BBC National Breakfast News picked up on it, RTE Radio, Radio 2 Drive Time, all the newspapers, all the news. Like we suddenly turned into these like accidental figureheads for business. And so that was just kind of reinforcing this idea that if we set out to do something, we could almost make change and make an impact. But then Lewis, my business partner at the time, turned 16. He got his GCSEs out of the way and he moved to London. And so I didn't have a business, but I enjoyed business. So I did what any lost and confused 16 year old would do. And I applied to go on the BBC's Young Apprentice. Uh, now, that was that was a, an unusual experience, one that I'm sure we'll speak about later on. But all you need to know at this point is that I had just ran a publishing business. I made it to week two. Alan Sugar stood there and he said, this is a publishing task. He explicitly said, like, you're a publisher. You should probably be project manager. Put myself forward. Didn't go very well. Got fired on a publishing yeah. task. And so the obvious thing I did is start another publishing business. The next one was called Magnate. Uh, it was a free men's lifestyle magazine in London. Ran that for free issues in print. Uh, interviewed people like Sir Richard Branson, Boris Johnson, a couple of the Maiden Chelsea guys when it was big back then. Um, and then that bit, sorry, that business eventually just kind of fizzled out. Very difficult to be in publishing, particularly uh, in a period of time where publishing was becoming increasingly more prevalent online. So running a print magazine was just never a goer. But learned some crucial skills uh, in the advertising side of that business, which made me realize that I have an interest in marketing. Around the same time as that, I was speaking to a guy called Richard, who is now one of my two business partners here at Pata. Uh, we started handing freelance work to each other when I was finishing school. So around the age of like 18, 19, we slowly and in the beginning accidentally turned that into a bit of an agency, realized we were good at what we did. And then, yeah, we've been at this for six years, helping businesses grow. So that's the last 10 years of my life in about four minutes. There we go. No, what I find really interesting is how you got sacked from a task. Um, and you obviously that, that was the first thing you zoned in on, but then you went and started another publishing business straight away. So what what made you do that? You know what it was. It was. I think it's important. To, <laughs> I'm about to suggest that it is reasonable to disregard the advice of Alan Sugar, but I think it's important to be really careful about what feedback you take and about who you listen to, right? And you could argue that the logical thing for somebody who has been told by a leading entrepreneur in the country that you're not very good at publishing, you could argue that the logical thing to do in that case is to believe him, to say, I'm not good at publishing. I shouldn't pursue this next business that I've had ambitions to pursue for years. But actually, I don't know how I had such wisdom at 16 to think this, but I realized that what he and what the producers and what the public, when they watched it, saw in that four day long task wasn't my actual ability, right? As in being on TV was scary. Being surrounded by 12 other very ambitious people was difficult. And so it was almost like what I needed to do to close that feedback loop was go and start up that next business to prove to myself that I was better than the version of myself that I presented at the time, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So did it give you, it sounds like it maybe gave you a bit of a chip on the shoulder. Like, actually, you're saying that, but I still believe I'm better than what you're saying. And you've gone out there and you've proved it. And 
when when you did that and you were getting these people from Made in Chelsea and Sir Richard Branson, uh, etc., how did that feel when you achieved? Did you feel like you proved all the critics wrong? So the magnate days are a weird one because at the time, and I think we're all a little bit like this, we're all quite self-critical and don't perhaps realize our achievements at the time. At the time, I, I had this feeling that we weren't doing enough, that we weren't growing fast enough, that we weren't getting the big advertisers. And so I almost dismissed it in the moment, right? As in, you know, Sir Richard Branson on the cover, I would tell myself, yeah, but we only did an email interview with him. So we never really met him. Um, Boris Johnson as a interview, like he was London mayor at the time, prime minister now, but I would be like, ah, but we, we only got that because I was on the apprentice and it was an apprenticeship event. And so his PR guys connected us. So in the moment, I perhaps didn't realize just how ridiculous magnate was for like a 16, 17, 18 year old to be running. However, looking back, yeah, I think it's, it more than proved the point that I set out to prove, even though it didn't succeed as a business, it, it helped me close that feedback loop and it taught me an awful lot. Yeah. Do you think, do you think you'd have done it without the, the downward, without the negativity? I'm not saying, I don't know how negative you were, but without that chip on your shoulder to have to try and prove him wrong, do you think you would have carried on? It's hard to say whether Magnate would have been what it ended up being without The Apprentice and without being fired by Lord Sugar. And I say that because it was only ever going to be a magazine in Northamptonshire. We were literally, there was uh, Johnson Press, who are now owned by The Independent, the people who own the local newspaper in Corby. They had this like lifestyle magazine and it was in Northampton, which is like the big town 15 minutes away from Corby, right? And we were like, wow, imagine if we could one day own a magazine in Northampton. And that was all the ambition of Magnate ever was. But I think it was almost a paradigm shift once I realized that I could beat the X thousand of people who applied for The Apprentice. Once I realized that I could go and compete with these people on the program, once I realized that I could sit across a boardroom table from Alan Sugar and actually put up a fight, I realized that perhaps I was thinking too small. Would I have done Magnet either way? Probably, but would it have been as big, as ambitious, um, as as fast moving as it was? Probably not because, yeah, I feel like there. So The Apprentice was filmed in the summer. It didn't air until just before Christmas. And so I had this like four or five month bubble and I could be post-rationalizing, but the way I remember it is that I kind of sat there at home in Corby and I thought, right, I need to do something before three and a half million people watch me get fired, I need a, a, a trick up my sleeve to pull out immediately afterwards. And so that's what I did. Uh, I really like how you said about it being on telly, there's producers, camera people around. Like, it's not reality, is it? We watch it for four, like 45 minutes to an hour. That's not how you would react in a normal situation, is it? Ever. You're never going to be put in that situation again. The further I drift from the NDA that I signed when I was 16 years old, the happier I am to just be honest about it. I wouldn't say that the the production company um, or any of their kind of apparatus change what happens factually. Like what you see on screen mm. is a, a reasonable representation of what happens. However, as you can imagine, there are deeply ingrained narratives that have to be painted in each episode to kind of make that 58 minute package work yeah. there are stage management things that happen so for example i think this is the same on basically every reality tv show but everyone wears a lapel mic and then each person who 
um, has a mic on, has their counterpart in the production team who will sit there and log every single word you say constantly. And so, you know, in the two or three days between a task starting and the boardroom, like there are these grand narratives being painted behind the scenes based on, well, he said this and she said this, so there could be some conflict there. So make sure that this is that. So yeah, I think that half of my issue with Young Apprentice, though I would absolutely do it again, is that I was perhaps a little bit naive as to what I was walking into. I thought I was walking into a competition to demonstrate that maybe I have a bit of business ability. Whereas actually on reflection, I was walking into a managed reality TV show and one that I think didn't let me show what I thought I was capable of. Yeah, I I think that's a really good way to put it. I mean, The Apprentice, Dragon's Den, those type of programs, they are made for entertainment. They're entertainment shows. And although I absolutely love watching them, I love The Apprentice, I love Dragon's Den, but the, the the kind of issue I've got with it um, is that young people, when they watch it, sometimes think that that's how business is. And that's what you've got to be like in business. I, you've got to like be absolutely slating each other in the boardroom to work your way up. And, and actually, that's not the reality. And you've got to maybe be nasty if you're, you know, like when they're investing in there. I think sometimes it gives a bit of a false impression of what business is. And then that can ruin relationships. I think sometimes... Maybe the, the programs have got a bit of responsibility to take for the way young people view business. But at the same time, they're entertainment shows. <laughs> there's, a, there's a running joke. So we have a group chat, the 12 of us who are on Young Apprentice. We stay in touch. We see each other every now and then. And there's a running joke that me and Max, the guy who was fired in week one, we were too kind for that show. And I think what the reality is, is that we were perhaps, and I'm sure the others would agree with me saying this, we were perhaps the only two who weren't willing to compromise ourselves to play up to the cameras if that makes sense like and it could be in my case i can't speak for max it could be because i've already been in business or i had already been in business for a few years at that point and so i understood how things really worked and how crucial it is to keep good relationships and be polite and listen to people and so on and so put me and max for example in a room of 10 people who were willing to do anything and say anything and act in any way because of the cameras and we were never going to last but yeah I think that the three of us know this. I imagine most people know this, but people no doubt slip through the gaps. They believe that to get ahead in business, you have to be a dick. And, you know, it, it plays out time and time again that that is the last thing you should be in business. Yeah, it only gets you so far. I mean, you will get so far being like that, but actually long-term you get caught out and you'll ruin relationships. So the best thing you can do is stick to your values, stick to your philosophy, be kind, help people, and actually, over the long term, you'll build networks and you'll progress so much further. And you never know when that person will come to help you in the future. So I think it's a very, very important point we've just touched on, actually. And the fact that you've been on that show and you've seen it from the inside, I've viewed it from the outside like that. You just said, actually, yeah, 10 out of the 12 were a bit more willing to be a bit more cutthroat, let's say. Um, is very interesting. Before, so, oh, sorry. Before you move on from this, I just wanted to ask, do you think it had any negative effects on you going on the show? I think in the very short term, and I don't blame this on the production company or the show itself, I think in the very short term, it had the ability to be damaging. And I say that because, and I spoke about this recently on my podcast, I was a fairly introverted, fairly self-conscious 16-year-old kid in a massive suit with floppy hair, right? And 
there were thousands, and I mean literally thousands of tweets, just pure abuse, an absolute like fire hose of it, nonstop, right? And fortunately, at the time, I didn't really pay much attention to it. The production company are really good at safeguarding, and there's a PR company, and they basically say, look, there's going to be a lot of stuff said, just don't look. That's yeah. the best advice, don't look. And so I didn't. But looking back, as I did about two years ago, I literally, this sounds really sad, but I literally just searched in like Sean Apprentice or Sean Young Apprentice in Twitter and scrolled. And it's ridiculous. Like it's utterly insane how many grown adults, because that's what they are, were willing to sit there on their sofa with their thumbs and tweet abuse publicly about children on TV, right? And so I think it could have been negative and it could have been damaging if I read that when I was 16, because I think I would have believed what people were saying. Fortunately, it took me seven or eight years to get around to reading them. And I kind of know myself a bit better now, but yeah, it's a funny one because I think people forget that those on TV on any program are just like them. Right. And it's, I don't want to say it's okay when it's adults on TV, but when it's literally kids, like that could have changed the course of my entire life. If I read that and thought, you know what, I'm not good enough maybe like here's a funny one actually so there was a guy on the series of young apprentice before me so he should have known better uh, and he was hired by yahoo who had like a blog at the time to write like celebrity showbiz young apprentice news about our series and he literally wrote an article in what you could call the national media and the headline of it was something like of course sean spooner got fired because his surname's ridiculous and he looks stupid in the suit and I'm like, man, imagine if I read that at the time, like yeah. what would I have thought? So yeah, it, it had the potential to be negative. Fortunately for me, I swerved it. Yeah. That's good though. I'm, I'm, it really intrigued me that because I've never really thought about them being so like yourself being so young on it. Like, and, and knowing it like it's such a production, like you say, I just wondered if there were any, but it's good to see that obviously didn't and there's safeguards and stuff like that in place, which is good. Um, but yeah, I think I'd struggle as an you struggle as an adult now, wouldn't you? Reading loads of people just saying uh, he's bald and he's got a red nose, <laughs> <laughs> and he can't have a shave. He's cut himself. Yeah, he's thirty year old. And he still oh, yeah, yeah. can't have a shave. Yeah. Um, his cat whiskers have come off. Um, so it's, it's a very important point, though. But I think as I've got older, personally, I've started to see when people give each when people put abuse out online and the like the, there's loads of abuse to celebrities, isn't the entrepreneurs and all sorts. I'm starting to realise it's they've got issues personally. When they're attacking people, it's not the person they've got the problem with. They've actually got the deep-rooted problems a lot of the time. And I think people need to, like yourself, if you would have read them at 16, you wouldn't have thought, well, that problem, that person's got probably issues themselves. You'd have thought, why are they attacking me? And it could have really done a lot of damage. But I think we need to realise that when people attack us online, Actually, they've probably got issues. It's probably not yourself. Um, I I had uh, an interesting uh, example of this this week where I had to remind myself again, right? So uh, I had Chris Williamson on my podcast a few weeks ago. He runs the the enormously successful uh, Modern Wisdom podcast, like 25 million downloads. And he was kind enough to take that episode and uh, put it on his YouTube channel. And so from the like couple of hundred listens that I got, and I'm used to getting like the occasional bit of abuse, suddenly 
Uh, I think the video got like 7,000 views and 400 comments or something mad in the first 24 hours. And there were, of course, some abusive ones in there. I think somebody commented in the first 10 minutes, something like, who's this cringe dweeb? And the only thing I need to remind myself of is two things, right? And I think this is true for anybody who is ambitious in business. The more you put yourself out there, the more you're going to get abuse and hate and so on. Because when you're doing something interesting, all that is is a reflection back to somebody who's unhappy that they're not doing that. But think have you think about the time that you were most happy in life right maybe it was on a family holiday and you're on the beach and you've got i don't know your parents or your kids there and you've got a drink in your hand and the sun. in that moment do you think i need to go online and abuse somebody that i don't know i need to call a stranger a dickhead yeah. i need to take the piss out of somebody's appearance it's, it's never then if ever and fortunately i've never left an abusive comment online but it's when you're at your lowest point, right? It's when you're unhappy. It's when things aren't going well for you that you even have the time to do that, let alone the intent. So I think that people just need to remember that, to your point, whenever there is a negative comment, the person who's leaving it is in a far worse position than you ever could be. And you just need to read it through that, that lens. You're never getting pulled down by people that are doing um, better than you, are you? Like nobody better than you tries to pull you down, do they? Exactly. Exactly. But it's just simple, isn't it? Um, do you want to do you want to move on from this, Alex, and bring in? Yeah, we, we we can do. I mean, I mean, what I'd move on to now is like you've talked a lot there, Sean, about the fact that you started these publication businesses, then you went on to Young Apprentice. So you, what we're in here is your life taking shape, I suppose, into where you are today. What did you do after all of that? Then have you run multiple businesses, or is it just the one you've got today? What's happened next? Uh, just the one business after Magnate. So I touched on it a little bit just then. Um, I met Richard um, and Richard knew somebody called Alex. Now, Richard is a very well-connected person. He's a people person. Alex is an incredible developer. And from my time in Magnate, I knew a little bit about copywriting and I knew a little bit about design. And so we realized maybe two years into the process of giving each other freelance work that actually we had the bare bones of an agency. And so we kind of formalized it about, I don't know, five or so years ago. Now we were called Dream at the time. Um, and we we slowly grew, we slowly learned. Like if I look back at the work we produced back then now, of course it's awful, but it has just been this incredibly slow, but I think incredibly important learning curve uh, to the point where about a year and a half ago, we decided to, to really double down on what we're doing uh, and create some fairly hefty growth ambitions. We rebranded around this time last year to Pata. Um, it's, it, you know, if ever you're going to rebrand, why not do it in the middle of a global pandemic when businesses are falling left, right, and center? Um, there's a long story behind that that I won't go into. But basically, we rebranded. Um, and now we're on a mission as the poster over there says so on the wall to build the most effective business growth agency on the planet. So that is a marketing agency, yes, but there's also two supplementary arms of the business that we're not quite ready to talk about yet that we're building alongside that to create this really compelling suite of services to consumer businesses who want to go out there and grow quite aggressively. And we're going to be the facilitators of that. So the marketing business, how has the pandemic, COVID, et cetera, impacted you and how have you reacted february late february uh, it was probably early march last year was a scary time to be in marketing right because you think about any business who is facing this global pandemic is looking forward there's boris johnson and rishi sunak and chris witty on tv saying that this thing is coming but we don't know what it's going to look like yet 
And this is before Rishi Sunak stood at that podium and announced things like furlough and all of the economic support, right? Business owners, understandably, got worried. And what's the first thing you cut? You don't cut your payroll, you don't cut your rent, you cut your marketing agency, right? Because if you're staring a huge economic downturn in the face and you need to save cash, well, then what's the point of marketing if nobody's going to be buying? And so that seemed to be the the mindset of businesses at large uh, very early on in the pandemic. And so the first couple of weeks of it were very touch and go for us. Fortunately, we didn't lose the majority of our clients, but there were a couple who dropped off and things were looking sketchy and everything was very uncertain. But fortunately, dare I say, and I I always feel, I don't want to say bad, but I always feel hesitant to push home that we've done really well during this because I'm aware that millions of people haven't, right? But uh, just through luck and nothing else, lots of businesses have had to move online. And we are a facilitator of that through both designing e-commerce websites, high converting websites, and also helping push paid traffic to those sites to help businesses make money. And so I think that it's almost a story of two stark contrasts for us. Uh, The very beginning of the pandemic was scary and uncertain, but now it's almost, it's been that rocket fuel that I think we as a business almost needed because it's very easy as a service-based business, as an agency to just kind of turn it into a bit of a lifestyle business, right? You know your clients, they know you, you're making them money, they're paying you money and it's comfortable. But I think that we as a business, certainly speaking for myself, we had it too comfortable for too long. And now that I've had my eyes open to what we could build and what we're sat upon and our potential, I think that I haven't felt this excited to be in business uh, since the early days of Corby magazine. Like it it really is that night and day. So yeah, the pandemic has been short-term bad, long-term good for us. Very interesting. We've talked to other people, haven't we, Drew? When on, on those other podcasts, and like the last guest we had had an Feldman, she had to completely change her model. The business that they had no longer worked with COVID and the pandemic, and that that also reignited a business, and it's actually taken them forward as well. So, as much as COVID is destroying businesses, I think it's important to understand that these external factors, like like what's happened to you, is it's made you reevaluate, and it's actually reinvigorated your passion for it and your belief and your your energy and it sounds like you're going to go on a massive you go you're going on a mission you're a man on a mission again and it's, it's great to hear that it's not all doom and gloom don't get me wrong there is doom and gloom but it's not all doom and gloom there is there is a lot of hope for There's business an interesting parallel i think that i've never spotted before until you just explained that to me which is that the two times in my business career when i felt that i really need to go and get something were the two times when I've been quite fundamentally challenged, right? The first time being fired by Alan Sugar, the second time being a global pandemic through necessity, essentially wiping out uh, businesses across the globe. There's an interesting commonality with every business owner I know, which is that through, um, through one reason or another, whether they grew up poor or maybe even they grew up incredibly rich and they feel like they need to outdo their parents, whatever it might be, every business owner seems to be good at wanting to prove a point, be, seems to be good at wanting to go after what their vision is, right? And I think it is these, these fundamental changes in our lives that push us forward. And so certainly the business owners I know almost exclusively 
are more excited than ever now, despite so many bad headlines. Which is so interesting. Yeah, I think I think I know the answer to this next one. But based on what you just said, I'm going to ask it anyway and just see your take on it. Um, have you ever thought with all these, like you said, it were scary at first, this pressure, you're a business owner, you've got people that rely on you. Have you ever thought about just thinking, it's not for me, nine to five, go go to work, come home, like with all that pressure? Has it ever crossed your mind? I'm going to go in two directions with this. So forgive me if these two answers seem unrelated, they might come together in the end. Um, the first thing to say, and I can't tell you why this is, but I've and this is truthful, like genuinely since the earliest age I can remember, I've never thought I would go to university and I've never thought I'd have a normal job. And I can't tell you why that is, right? I just, like my parents had entirely normal jobs. My brother has a normal job. Everyone I know has normal jobs, but I just, it just never seemed to be for me. And so because I've never had a real job, so to speak, that doesn't seem like the secure option for me to go back to, right? If I, if if the walls around me right now fell down and I had to start from zero, the last thing I would do is go and work in somebody else's business where, you know, to, to employ me profitably, it's going to cost my salary plus their margin, plus that, plus corporation tax, plus all of these things. Having a job seems like an incredibly unsecure way to, to earn money because you need to prove more of your worth before you're secure, right? So that's direction one to answer no. And then direction two, I've completely forgot. <laughs> let, let me have a quick think. What was I going to yeah, say? Take your time, no worries. <laughs> You'll leave it guessing if not, so. <laughs> That's going to frustrate me. That's I can put the countdown clock on. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. Sorry, um, Sean, you turned out. What, what was the question? Repeat the question. We might get there. I thought about having a nine to five, just real pressure that comes along with running a business and people were like, I remember the other answer. Sorry. Um, so uh, this is a massive tangent, but this will make sense. So about five years ago, uh, my mum and I could work out that something was wrong with my dad, but we couldn't quite put our finger on it. Right. Something just wasn't quite right. Very long story short, it turns out that he had Alzheimer's, but there was a period for about two years before he was accepting of that idea. So before he would go to get diagnosed where he naturally couldn't work because well, he just couldn't work, right? Because of the illness. Um, my mum would have to stay off of work um, unofficially. Like she wasn't claiming time off or anything, but she was just a bit worried and she could see that something was wrong. So she would stay home kind of secretly and support my dad. And that meant that there was a period of my life when I was around 20, 21, where my dad was earning no money, where my mum was earning no money. And where quite frankly, because I was incredibly early on in this business journey as an adult where I was earning next to no money. And so there are literally, and I found these pictures in my Dropbox the other day. I've always said that I have these pictures and I've never been able to find them. I found them in my Dropbox the other day. There's a picture I have where my fridge is empty. And I don't mean like, oh, there's a couple of, you know, cheese strings and a pot, like empty, right? I have a picture where my freezer, fortunately at a different time to the fridge, so there was some food each time, but where my freezer is empty, absolutely no food, right? And so I feel weirdly fortunate to have been to that point because now I feel like whatever happens to me, even if I lose all of this tomorrow, even if I have to start again from zero, I'm never going back to that point. Mm. And so 
do I feel like I'd ever need to get a nine to five? No, because I've got a little bit of money in the bank that would see me through and I would just start again because nothing can be worse than that. And so in this weird kind of gratitude bubble that I live in, I can only go up from where I was, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's sometimes why people choose a nine to five option, choose a safe career, because it means that they may never, although obviously your dad went through that period, but it, it, in general, you, you're protected. Your fridge shouldn't be empty because at least you should get enough food. Although sometimes we can argue that Businesses don't pay enough to make that happen, but it's a lot more secure. You've got a, you've got a designated income every month. Owning your own business, I mean, it could the sales could just dry up and you've got no money. There's a big difference. So going back to your previous point, the first point you made about why you wouldn't work nine to five, you said that you've never wanted a normal job and you never were going to go to uni. So do you believe that entrepreneurs are born, are born or made? I thought about this a lot because I've been asked this before. Truthfully, I think the answer is made. I think that I was just fortunate to have an upbringing that was like, we didn't, we never had a lot of money. Right. And so I've always understood that to make money, you need to work. Put alongside that, the fact that I've just had this kind of weird curiosity for as long as I can remember, but that was probably instantiated from like my dad's curiosity, for example. And so that's all environment and, uh, made rather than born and then those kind of accidental business encounters the basketball team where I thought I was trying to be an athlete whereas in reality I was trying to be a business person with the magazine where I thought I was trying to be a journalist when in reality it taught me that I enjoyed advertising and so on I'm not qualified to say 100% that people aren't born with genes that pre-expose them to wanting to be a bit entrepreneurial, but I can almost trace back all of the tendencies that I now have to the past 25 years of kind of subtle lessons. So I think personally, I think made, but hey, I could be wrong. Through life experiences then. So through the things that happen in your life, the way you react, you sound to me like you react very positively to adversity. So when the tough gets when when it gets going, what's the saying? It's a very simple. We're going to get tough. The tough get going. Tough get going. Yeah. When 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 things go bad, that sounds like when you awake. You 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 you're awake. <laughs> you, you said when when Alan Sugar told you actually you're not good enough at this. You you woke up. You were like, I'll show you who I am. When COVID hit and it it potentially put your business at risk, you were like, right, I need to really think about this. I, I'm awake now. So I think you I, need good times. <laughs> I find myself asking this question a lot um, from like the most minute annoyances where someone sends an email and it's like, oh, this is two days late, right the way through to like really fundamental life-changing issues. I find myself asking myself the question, what is the alternative? Because it's very, very easy to feel like a victim. It's very easy to think that you're backed into a corner and there's nothing you can do or that you only have one option or that what you need to do next is defined by somebody else. But when you ask, what is the alternative? I think it compels you towards the best option just immediately, right? So I could have complained about the fact that when I was 20, I was having to buy food on like a fucking 60% APR credit card because, you know, that was the only way we could eat. I could have complained about that. I could have said, oh, it's so unfair that I don't have rich parents or I can't go out tonight because I can't afford it. But what was the alternative, right? The alternative was not eating. And so when you ask the question, it's very, very obvious what to do. And so, yeah, I, I think I'm perhaps naively optimistic about some things, but only because, you know, I've, I've been through 
enough situations and realize that life carries on and that things work themselves out that yeah just just facing that alternative um and giving yourself the permission to make a decision because once you look at the alternative suddenly you have two options and not just one and then you're in control again i think that's where that comes from yeah once you take accountability i think that what mean we talk about accountability a lot um and i think once you start taking accountability and realizing that actually was i at fault there what what could i have done differently not well this happened because of that person well what part did i play in that what could i do differently once you start learning and reflecting like that you grow you develop you become better and i don't i feel accountability is something that a lot of it's something that we need to focus on a lot more so it's yeah. so underrated accountability because if you're accountable and like you mentioned victims and having a victim mentality if you're accountable you can change that because it's you if you're blaming everything else then you can't necessarily change that but you can change you so we talk about it a lot with students as well and yes people definitely start there and some start here but that that's reality at the minute isn't it and if you blame people, you're never going to get to that point, are you? And I think I think that's... Put it this way, Drew. We, you just said we talk a lot, a lot with students. The student, we, we're quite straight with them. Like, if they come late and they start telling us, oh, it's because X, Y, Z, we, say, we don't want to hear it. Like, they, they go, oh, I've had a bad back. Oh, have you really? You know what? Take 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 my clock room a little bit. Tell them, we don't believe you. Just just tell us the truth. We say that all the time, just, just own up to it. Just, just say I'm late because I'm late. I overlaid, whatever. We're not bothered. We'd rather you just tell us the truth. And what you notice is the ones who start taking accountability for just the small things like being late or missing a deadline, all of a sudden, they're far superior to the ones who've completely had a victim mentality all the way through. Because the ones who've had that victim mentality or who, who've not taken accountability when things have gone wrong are still exactly where they were when they started. And the ones who started taking accountability who definitely didn't at the start, oh, far, far ahead. Would you agree, Drew? Oh, yeah, they, they, they massively progress. And you can't get everyone on that, on that in that way. But, yeah, they're, they're far out. So, Pat, I, I think, well, I think, have you ever heard of that, Sean, where the, that story about the two brothers whose father were an alcoholic? I haven't. And um, it's one brother, one brother becomes homeless. And one brother becomes really successful and they go to the homeless brother and say, why, why do you think you're homeless? And he says, my father an alcoholic. And then they go to the, the really successful one and they say, why, why are you so successful? And he says, because my father was an alcoholic. And basically they had the same situation, but they decided to take it and do different things with that situation and not blame the situation. And I always think that's good. I, I don't know what you think of it. I think the thing is, and I think we're all in agreement here, if you condition yourself with this external locus of control to believe that everything is somebody else's fault, which is the comfortable and easy thing to do in the short term, there is never the incentive to go out and do things in life, right? If if you want to start that business, but you have pre-exposed yourself to the idea that it won't work because my mum doesn't support me or because my brother thinks I shouldn't have a business or because my friends will laugh. If you immediately hand away any control that you have, then what is the incentive to do anything? I think that responsibility, particularly for younger people, is quite a 
I don't want to generalize here, but quite a foreign concept in as much as let's be real, people my age and below have had a fairly easy ride so far. Of course, there are exceptions, but I'm talking like bigger societal issues. We lived through one minor recession and that was when we were too young to really know about it. We've had it easy, right? But reading books like um, Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink, um, where he talks about exactly this idea, right? Being utterly responsible for everything in your life, not because everything actually is your fault, but because as soon as you start blaming yourself and taking responsibility for everything, you're in the driver's seat again. Yeah. I love Jocko. He's he's right. He's really good, isn't he? Watch every morning on Instagram. That's that's the one. What I really like though, what you said then, Sean, was that even when it's obviously not your fault, it's looking about, it's it's still taking accountability to what can I do? How can I react? And it's not just blaming it and just sitting there still. And I, I just, I believe in it so much, accountability and taking responsibility. I just think that is the key to everything. You literally wouldn't have the business you've got if you blamed others when things went wrong. It's as simple as that. I, I truly believe like, it. Like blaming Lord Sugar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I, I just think that all entrepreneurs are pretty much accountable. They've got to be. Because otherwise they get lost and then the business will go down the path. It's as simple as that. So I have spoken to you before, uh, Sean, on LinkedIn, well, a few times. And one of them was about businesses getting reviews. It was a video you put out there. And we've since gone and done that. We since uh, have gone and done Trustpilot. Um, but my question was, you, your video was about businesses getting reviews and why they were important. So can you explain to our audience why you believe that it's very important for businesses to have reviews such as Trustpilot or Google, etc.? I think an easy analogy to begin here is to ask you, how did you discover me? And why did you think I should be on your podcast, right? It's because somebody that you know and trust, Peter Watson said, I'll give Sean a call. Like he'll be a guy to jump on, right? We intrinsically trust those who are in our tribe. This is like evolutionary psychology. This goes back to when we used to roam around in tribes in the desert and we needed to trust those around us because if we didn't, we get eaten by a bloody lion, right? And so it's deeply ingrained within us to trust those that we know and to trust people who look and sound like us. And I, you know, people who, for example, your friends are on Facebook, if they give a good review to a business, you're likely to trust that. I think it's easy on the internet for businesses to think that you can build it and they will come right chuck up a website do a couple of google ads and people will discover the site and they will come but actually time and time again countless pieces of research show that social proof is incredibly important not least because 50 years ago you walk into a shop and there's a lot that you can kind of implicitly gauge right does does the shop look nice does does this product actually look like i think it should look do i trust the business owner when i look at them in the eye that's all stripped away when you're on a smartphone and so having to um work with what you've got the opinion of others particularly those who you know but even complete strangers is so important for businesses and we see it like in black and white in conversion rates right you have a product landing page of no social proof on you're throwing money away if, you, if you're putting Facebook ads behind that, you're literally throwing money away. You chuck in some reviews and some, I don't know, pictures of customers with their product and a couple of influencers who enjoy it. And that conversion rate will change. So this stuff is no longer opinion like it was maybe 10 years ago. It's now backed by lots and lots of data. If you were, if you were selling this, uh, well, when you do sell services, 
if you could say one thing that you'd you do use would you say facebook ads would you say google ads would you say what 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 advice would you give in terms of that you've picked a week to ask that with the ios 14.5 changes um so look i think the thing is to give a bit of context to your listeners who perhaps don't know um facebook and apple are locked in a battle over the question of user privacy right so facebook ad relies a lot on third-party cookies and tracking visitors around the internet on other websites that don't belong to facebook so that they can gather data for things like retargeting and lookalike audiences and interests and everything like that all the stuff that you go to buy a pair of shoes um you end up not buying them you see the ad on facebook that's what's going on there apple takes the stance that actually um privacy is i guess a human right and they're not wrong in that but they suggest that it should be down to each individual iphone and ipad user as to whether or not facebook's allowed to do this and so they've been locked in this war of words for about six months since apple announced that they were going to switch off by default facebook's ability to track iphone users across the internet now literally yesterday the day before we're recording that change came into place and we're still uh, watching the data carefully to work out what this really means because truthfully we know as much as we can know but even facebook doesn't know at this point right you can see in the back end of ads manager they are scrambling because there is huge data blind spots right now do i think that facebook and instagram advertising and indeed google ads who are also moving away from third party cookies slowly are still the most effective forms of advertising on the internet and indeed on the planet, yes. Do I think that there will be a short blip whilst Facebook has to build workarounds and understand new data sets and so on? I do, however, if I had to put my money behind somebody to be a winner here, it's always going to be Facebook and Google, right? Mm. They are some of the biggest businesses in the world. Facebook by population would be the biggest country on the planet if it was a country. So. I think that you know there's there's a lot of fear mongering and there's a lot of talk out there that Facebook ads is about to become ineffective. I don't buy it. Even looking at the data in our accounts today, which is probably the worst day it's ever going to be because Apple's pulled the trigger and Facebook hasn't yet been able to respond, it's still profitable. So yeah, yeah if if there was one thing to do from a brand new business right the way through to an enormous scaled up e-commerce site, Facebook Instagram and Google, you almost can't lose unless you're really bad, unless you have, you know, gaping holes in your landing page or whatever it might be. It's very difficult not to make those profitable with enough time and attention. Would you, so say somebody's owning a small business watching this, revenue like 40, 50 grand a year, would you, how much budget would you allocate to that? So I know that's very vague, but how long's a piece of string? Yeah. Um, the, the rule of thumb is generally that you should be allocating at least 10% of your turnover to marketing. That's yeah. sensible, right? But then the beauty with the always on nature of things like Facebook and Instagram ads is that you can scale that quite ad hoc, right? Because if say your turnover this year is 50K and so you think, right, my marketing budget for the next year needs to be only 5K, but you start putting live campaigns that work and that scale and that the return on ad spend is still where it needs to be for you to be making a profit from that. There's no reason not to scale that up. Now, I won't go into the the, <laughs> the boring in-depth answer of why Facebook ads don't always scale and all this stuff, but essentially 10% of your turnover should be a, 
a minimum target of what you're putting into marketing, what you're willing to try and test and get data from and begin to make a profit. But then from there, if there's a return on ad spend, if you're making a profit, why not scale it, right? Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. If obviously if it's working, you're testing it and yeah. Obviously scale it up and make more of it on that side. Yeah. Alex, you look like you're gonna say something. I can see yeah, it. Yeah, it, it was just um, I don't know if you've seen it, Sean, on it. I think I think it was maybe over the last couple of weeks. Someone went on to Dragon's Den and they won a pitch a business called Generate. And that was about data. So that'll be one for you to look up. He's got a business called Generate. He's gone on Dragon's Den, did a phenomenal pitch, got investment. And it's all about people's data. So he believes people should have a right whether the data is shared. And if it's shared, he believes they should get money for it. And he also believes they should have an option to opt out. So his model is basically customers say, yes, I want it to be shared with multiple parties. And you can also see who those parties are, but they will get a, a, a portion of the cut. Generate, I think, gets 20%. And then because the, the user, the web user can also say, no, I don't. And then there's no sharing of data. I think that could be something that would be quite interesting for you to have a look at. Um, it's only recent. It's just he's done really well on Dragon's Den, so he's got a lot of publicity. Um, he's, I think he's been on some uh, TV pro, you know, Good Morning Britain, that type of thing. So just have a look at that. That might be interesting with the data battle between Apple and Facebook. It probably links very closely to that. I'll check it out. The um, yeah. I tweet I tweeted last night, right? Just as a, I guess a rounding off thought on this with the whole argument about data. The thing is, right? There is gonna Facebook's rolling this pop out. Facebook's rolling this pop-up out slowly. That's a tongue twister. Yeah. Uh, so most people haven't yet seen it. But in the next few weeks, everyone listening to this, if you have an iPhone or an iPad and use Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all these kind of apps, you're going to get a pop-up which asks you, um, do you want to allow this app to track you on third-party websites? And you have two options, right? You either click, yes, I do, or no, I don't. Simple as that. The thing is, and I think that this is a, a blind spot in people's understanding of this who don't really pay as much attention as us in the marketing world do, whether you click yes or no, you're still going to see as many adverts on Facebook. The only difference is if you click yes, you're going to see adverts you like from brands that you enjoy interacting with and products that you would probably purchase. If you click no, you're just going to see more ads that you don't care about from brands which can afford to waste the money. You're going to make the brands that you do like lose touch with you, and it's going to cost those brands and those small businesses that you interact with more money to win new customers. And so I don't disagree with Apple's wider stance on this. There is a real conversation to be had about data and how much of it the apps like Facebook use, but I just don't see the benefit from a user point of view of saying no, because there are small businesses out there who can't afford the services of agencies like ours, who therefore don't understand this stuff. And I don't say that in a patronizing way. I just mean that they're too busy, right? They've got a business to run. And so it's going to cost them more to win new customers. It's going to lose small businesses money and it's going to disconnect them from their customer bases. And so why anybody would press no on that pop-up have just as many ads, but from big, faceless, nameless companies that they don't care about, I just don't understand. People imagine somebody coming and knocking down your door, don't they? Like because you've sent like a text to your friend, or like they're watching your emails, and that that that's the perception, isn't it? That your data now you're being tracked. Like oh, it knows where my house is, and like that that's the perception, isn't it? And the thing is, look, 
I say it again, Facebook probably does track too much data. Mm. And there is a societal movement because of things like the social dilemma and all of these documentaries. There is good grounds for people to say, no, I don't want you to track as much data. And because of capitalism, because of the market, Facebook will and already is listening to that. But do I think it is the place of a third party who frankly has nothing to do with it? Apple, who, by the way, have their own ad products. And so it is absolutely within their vested interest to do this. No, because I think that's just bad for small businesses. I think truthfully, it's bad for users forcing the hand of a third party business. And it's just not the way to do this, right? Facebook, we're going to make changes anyway, because the conversation has changed changed people's awareness of the situation has changed to the point where they're going to have to change their ad platform and their technologies anyway why not let them govern themselves forced by the forces of capitalism to to do it in such a way that their users prompt rather than just having a third party come and frankly wipe out small businesses because that's what's going to happen the people who can't afford to get facebook ad right because they don't have the budget to waste or they don't have the money to invest in an agency suddenly they're going to struggle to win new customers. And when that happens, when that happens in the middle of a pandemic, where'd you go? It's very interesting. It's the, and while we're on the subject of marketing, um, we've got a lot of students who, we, well, we know a lot of young people across the nation, never mind our own students, want to work in marketing. But they've never been on work experience or anything. They just know that they want to work in marketing. So for anyone who's like that, or anyone of any age, really, could you explain what marketing truly is? So what's a day in the life of Sean? Uh, like in terms of what do you actually do in marketing? And what advice would you give to those people about what's the best way to break into marketing as well? So this might be a long answer, but it will, it will lead to a nice result at the end, right? Which is the, how do you get into it? So you can break our business down into a few sections. So it begins with strategy, Right. The, the days of build it and they will come on the internet are gone. There is a critical mass of businesses, which means that you need to have a good marketing strategy in place that links back to a consumer problem, that links back to a business problem and that you can build creative around, right? So once you've got that strategy in place, you then need incredibly good creative. Again, it's no longer acceptable to just have a product image and like the name of a product and the price and a click shop now button on a Facebook ad. People will scroll past it. Facebook in recent years has dialed up the number of ads that we each see on our timelines. And so in the same way that six years ago, you know, the right-hand column of a newspaper website on desktop, um, this this might be a complete uh, historical blind spot for your students because I imagine most people don't read the news on desktop anymore. But there was that right-hand third of a desktop website that we slowly became blind to because we all knew that content was on the left and that ads were on the right. And so we began to ignore the right-hand side. The same is kind of happening with Facebook, right? We know that every free posts, there's going to be an ad. So we just scroll past it really quickly. So based on your strategy, you need to create scroll stopping content. Let's call it that. Mm. It's to be incredibly good copy, incredibly good video or imagery, and then a really compelling reason to click through to the website. The next area for us at least is the website, which is it has to be, there's, there's all sorts of psychology that goes into building a website that converts, that can um, capture the attention of the user when they arrive at the top of the page, then give them interest into why they might be interested in the product, then desire, which is social proof, all the things that we've already spoken about, and then action, so a very clear reason or a very clear way for them to add to cart or to check out or whatever it might be. So there's all of that. And then once you've either got somebody as a customer, 
uh, or have them as an email sign up. There's this whole world of email marketing and email flows and automations and all this clever stuff that you can do behind the scenes to keep somebody retained, to have them come back for more and all of this stuff. So from like a super high level, that's what we do. And my day is just a mix of kind of managing all of that stuff. How do you get into marketing? Dare I say, whilst sat with two teachers, the way to get into it is not through university. And that's because there's a couple of reasons. And I have to, uh, my only caveat here is I've never been to university and therefore by definition, I'm not qualified to speak on this. However, there's a couple of issues with university. The first is that it's far too theory-based in just marketing. And by that, I mean that marketing is like 30% about marketing, but then it's also like 30% about psychology and it's like 30% about design and all of these things. And you kind of need uh, like a bird's eye view of all of this to really be a good marketer, in my opinion. But then on top of that, platforms and mediums change so quickly these days. Look at Facebook, for example. Like six months ago, I would have told you matter of fact that Facebook was untouchable as an ad platform. This week, we now know that that might not be the case. It probably will be, but it might not be the case, right? Imagine starting a university degree and learning something in year one. By the time you come and get that graduate job three years later, what you've learned is out of date. And so you don't need to be good at saying you're a marketer. It's the whole thing, right? Don't tell me you're funny, make me laugh. Don't tell me you're good at marketing. Don't tell me you want to get into marketing. Capture somebody's attention who's in a position to hire you. Because when they hire you, they're hiring you to capture people's attention. So, and you, you know, the early days of social chain, we saw the mad ways that people apply for jobs at social chain, like sending an owl into their office or making a video or whatever it might be. The same thing's true with Rise at Seven these days, that super fast growing agency, I think in Sheffield, where people do the wackiest things to apply for jobs there. But that is exactly what you need to do because you need to show... Can't think of a good example. It's like... I can't think of a good example, but basically you need to show that you can do what you're going to be hired to do, right? In the same way that if you were being hired to be a bus driver, you would be required to show that you can drive. You'd have a driver's license. You need to show that you can capture attention in order to be hired to then go and capture people's attention. I think we, we'd, I'll speak for both. I think we fully agree with what you just said. Like, although we are teachers uh, and we're probably, we've both been to university, we've got master's degrees, but I would totally agree with you in terms of marketing. In terms of a lot of things, to be honest, nowadays, like apprenticeships are good ways. Um, doing, we always, doing is, doing is the best thing you, it sounds like rubbish wording, but doing is the best thing you can do, isn't it? Like you show well, it. You learn. <laughs> yeah. You learn, don't you? When you do it, you'll either do it well and then you know how to do it, or you'll do it and do it badly and learn by failing because then you'll learn what you need to do. Just being told and doing an assignment on it and doing an exam on it. Yes, don't get me wrong, you're building knowledge. But there's that much knowledge out there anyway now. Actually, you can gain knowledge. Um, It's not to say that university is terrible, but it's to say that actually you don't need to go. That's the point, isn't it? If you want to get into marketing, actually you can just go and get into marketing by using your creativity. Like you say, I like the word where you say capture your audience, like capture them by doing something different and if you can do that that's the art of marketing isn't it to capture people's attention so yeah, yeah i really yeah. like that i went to speak a couple of years ago now at a school which is owned by the same academy trust as the school i went to but the particular school i went to speak at they're they're slightly more forward thinking they're slightly more kind of 
go and do something like a vocation or go and do an apprenticeship or whatever. They're, they're quite open when it comes to the opportunities for their students. Now, I know for a fact that I'm very unlikely to ever be invited to speak back at my school because they were one of these schools who were like the, you know, always in the top 10 of A star to C, GCSEs or whatever it is these days, like one to nine. I still don't understand that, but we'll say yeah. A star to C. Um, they're in, you know, they're in the charts and they they push every year, like 96% of our students went on to university and 17 went to Oxbridge mm. and all this stuff. And I think my issue with university stems from my personal experience of just seeing so many people who could have done more if they weren't pushed through that route, that one size fits all route for that stat at the end, right? For the school to be able to say, well, we had 97.2% of students going to university this year, because yes, maybe 71.4% of them should have gone on, but the other 20 something percent showing that I wasn't very good at maths now, the other 20 something percent probably shouldn't. And, you know, I have friends, I have uh, people that I went to school with who went through university, spent the tens of thousands of pounds of debt with a crazy interest rate, um, spent more importantly, three years of their life that they can't get back doing something that they now no longer have any interest in and that isn't helping them get a job. And so I just can't help but feel that there needs to be more of a conversation. It sounds like the two of you are pushing this conversation and rightfully so. The university is an option, yeah. but it shouldn't be the only one. And, um, and I, that, is, that is exactly, I think the word conversation is exactly what it is. It isn't to say that university is the devil and no one should ever go, and the, but it's to say that it, it isn't the option. Like when schools and colleges are pushing, you don't go basically because that's how some people are made to feel, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt you, Alex. No, well, it's it's like that point about 97% of our students go on to university. Well, why is that a good thing? Why why is that? What does that even mean? Yeah, okay. So tell me why that's good then. Yeah. So what do they do after university? I'm more interested in that. Um, and I think what we do, we look at the stat and everyone's like, oh, I've got to send my student, my, my son or daughter there because 97% of them go on to university. Well, absolutely. Should they be going to university? That's the conversation. And for some people, university is amazing. For others, doing like what you've done is the right thing. We're different people. How many, and I think it's... Oh, I was just going to say, how many times, Sean, have you been done a great pitch to a, cl- a potential client and they've gone... I would have gone with your business. I just need to ask you how many uh, A to Cs you got uh, and what degree you've got. But ne- obviously never happened, does it? And here's the thing, right? And I, by the way, just to be clear, I'm not advocating fraudulently lying on a CV, but how many times has any business ever, other than maybe the big four who actually look into this stuff, ever actually checked, did you get those GCSEs? Did you get those A-levels, right? They make a face value assessment based on the person who sat across from them on a Zoom call these days or in an interview. And they decide based on that, whether they give someone a chance or not. And that's not to say, to echo your thoughts, it's not to say that there isn't a place for university, but it is to say that you can do an awful lot more with those three years if you're a particular kind of person. Yeah, totally agree with that. It should just not be the only way. We shouldn't be pushing too hard. And I think sometimes because it's deemed as like a positive destination and it's it's set up here on a hierarchy, it's, it's deemed to be the best way. And it just, it's a way. It isn't always the best way. So let's move on from that then. How, how long have you got left, Sean? Have you, are you okay? For as long time? as you want, honestly, yeah, I've got all right. <laughs> so that's, that's great then. Well, well, let's go for it. <laughs> um, so I think, I think what we, what I'd like to ask you, and we've learned a lot about you, to be honest, during this, this hour, is what's been your biggest accomplishment so far then? 
you're doing a lot in such a short space of time. It's going to be a left field answer. Yeah. I think my biggest accomplishment is arriving at the mindset that I currently have, because I think that that's what's going to take me to big accomplishments, if that makes sense. Like, Absolutely. yes, it's cool that I once interviewed somebody who's now a prime minister. Yes, it's cool that I launched a magazine in London when I was in my teen years. Yes, it's cool that I was on Young Apprentice. Yes, it's cool that we have all these clients at Patter, but none of that feels like a, a destination moment. And spoiler, maybe there isn't a destination moment. Maybe with the hedonic treadmill and all of these things, I'm never actually going to feel like I've made it. That's very likely, just to put that in as a side point. But I think the more I reflect on the past, literally 10 years now, I've been running businesses for 10 years in one form or another. I can't help but feel that it's all just been this, this learning journey up to the point where I almost feel like I'm ready to begin again. And this is a super niche thought, but let me add it because it's just coming to my mind, right? There is a meditation app that I used a while ago called Waking Up by Sam Harris. And a really interesting thing happens when you're trying to learn meditation, which is that you're asked to sit there for 10 minutes or 20 minutes and think about nothing, right? Essentially, you're asked to just sit there in silence. And when a thought comes into your mind, you need to recognize that it was a thought and then let it disappear and return back to focusing on the breath. And it's really bloody hard for the first nine minutes. It's incredibly hard. And you find yourself thinking about the stupidest shit you can imagine, like everything other than meditating. And then in the last minute, Sam says, and begin again. And it's super easy. And so I like that I've arrived at this point where, you know, I'm 25, I'm kind of on the cusp of being a real adult when it comes to age and all these things where I've taught myself enough and I've given myself enough experiences and I've built things like real confidence that I certainly didn't have when I started out that I'm now in a point where I feel like I can begin again. Do you know, I really like what you're saying because I can really resonate with it. Do you not, do you not feel like the actual achievement in the end becomes kind of meaningless. Like when you, when you set a target, it's what you're striving for. And it's actually the process that's the fun element. It's the process where you're growing. You hit the target and you're like, you're absolutely buzzing for, for a certain amount of time. Then all of a sudden, there's a new target and you move on. And I just find that like, life's more about the process than it is the end goal. And like you said, you don't know whether you'll ever get there. I mean, what is there? What, what is the end goal? Like, it's funny. I, um, the last time I did something like this was about six months ago where I was sat and asked some questions and the final two questions I was asked, the first was, um, it was something like, I don't know, it wasn't a great question, but it was something like, do you think you've made it or whatever? And I, my answer was like, Oh, I don't know, but I think one day I will make it. And she was like, what is making it to you? And I couldn't answer. I couldn't answer because there isn't an end goal. There's just trying, isn't there? There's just, there's just waking. It sounds so cheesy, but there's just waking up and, trying to be that person that you one day wanted to be when you were like, when I was 15 and I was starting out in business and I thought it was the coolest fucking thing in the world, the idea of having an office and having employees and like having a car and having clients and writing emails and all this stuff. And it sounds ridiculous, but actually paradoxically, like I'm already there and I'm never going to get there because it's just a process. Yeah. The goalposts just keep moving. It's like just a simple example is like our YouTube channel when we started it. We, we were like, oh, imagine getting to a thousand one day. And like, we got to a thousand and it, we were like getting, we were like, we got to a point and we knew we were going to get to a thousand. 
Then when we got there, we're like, get in, we give each other a handshake. Well done, mate. We've tried hard there. We've achieved it. But then, like, you just move on. It's like the actual achievement isn't actually that good. I think you've explained this to me before, Drew, about Dell uh, Del only fools and horses when he when he actually wins all that money in the end. That's what it's all about, isn't it? This yeah. time next year, Rodney. And then they win all that money. And did you say about him when he, he stands in his flat? Yeah, he goes back to his flat and they're selling the flat and he just stands there and sort of looks round and and he's he's upset. Like and he re- you can tell he realizes that getting all them dodgy goods, trying to flog him, going to pub and trying to flog him to his mates and that, that that was the thing he enjoyed. And then it ends with him saying, Right, Rodney, we've got this these millions. Next this time next year, we're gonna be billionaires. And it starts again. And it's like a sad moment, but then bang, he starts again. And I how clever it. is that though? Because yeah. that's that's just to me, that is like that is actually what life's like. Yeah. When you watch that episode, or when I watched that episode when I was younger, I never even thought about it. We're just like, oh well, he's upset because oh, but actually, as you start going through that in life and you start achieving certain things, these targets that you thought maybe were achievable, or you'd have to work really hard to get to, you get them and then actually well you just move on and you start again it just keeps going um so how, have you, just... how have you managed to keep perspective then so you said like you've arrived at this mindset now that you're really happy that you're in this mindset how have you what is that mindset for a start and how how do you keep perspective it's a big question yeah <laughs> um I think the mindset is just a combination and everybody arrives at this kind of mindset eventually, don't they? I'm sure the two of you are there in some way or another, which is essentially just that we all start off in our careers or even before then when we're children and we believe that things that are, here's a story. This is, this is a departure, but this will explain it. Right. So I never had any money when I was in school, right? My parents worked and they worked hard, but you know, that covered like rent and food and electric and things like that. And so I went to a school where about 50% of the kids were from the local area, like the local town catchment area. And then another 50% were from like the town across from us and all of the big fucking driveways, four cars on the driveway uh, villages, right? Like the, the baller kids. And there was a guy, I'm still good friends with him actually, but there was a guy who was like my best friend in like year seven and eight, who would always have like the latest iPhone and the latest watch and all of these things. And I just could not get my head around how somebody could afford like a thousand pound phone or a thousand pound laptop. Like it seemed impossible, like by definition impossible because Mm. I didn't have the money and I knew that my parents didn't have the money and therefore it was impossible. But Eventually, I started working, I started businesses, I made a little bit of money here and there. And I was able to, a few years ago, buy my first iPhone, which looking back now, because of the hedonic treadmill is a ridiculously small milestone. But I still have the box to the iPhone, despite the fact that the iPhone left me years ago when I was drunk one night in London and got mugged and it's probably owned by somebody else right now. Um, I still have the box and I have the boxes of every iPhone and Apple product I've ever bought because although the the devices aren't there anymore, it's a reminder that eventually the impossible becomes the inevitable, right? The idea that putting in day after day enough work and moving in the right direction slowly but surely day after day, week after week, year after year, something that was once literally by definition impossible 
was just like a Tuesday. Of course it was. It was just popping into a shop and buying a phone. It was nothing. And the reason I have those boxes, and this is kind of what the mindset is, is that we all have these stretch goals, these things that, again, seem impossible. But just understanding that if you incredibly slowly move in the right direction day after day, and I think actually I, I storied your conversation with Peter when he spoke about this book, because it's a book that both of us love, The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. The idea of compounding interest in your habits, that if you are 0.1% better every day for a year, you're like 37.7 times better by the end of the year, right? Mm. My mind frame now, where I've arrived at through teaching myself over 10 years that the impossible can become inevitable, is just to keep going just yeah. keep moving in the right direction. And eventually these things that seem ridiculous now, maybe we'll be here in 10 years having a conversation about how they're just another Tuesday. Yeah. I love that. Like it's continuous improvement, isn't it? Have you ever, have you ever heard of David Goggins? Mm, reading his book right now. Can't hurt me. Oh. Is it, are you reading that? With the, the like ultra marathons and stuff. Yeah. I can't think of what it's called. Yeah. 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 Can't tell you his life story, how hard he's had it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me of that. He just like no excuses, keep moving forward, just keep just keep going at it. I just I just love that a mindset and approach. And like you said, you seem anyone successful has that mindset, don't they? I think that's just just way it is. And it comes down to that other thing, not to loop back on myself, but what is the alternative? It is it's not attractive or cool or interesting or Instagram worthy to say that it takes literally 10 years of life to arrive at the point where you feel like you can just begin getting started in business, right? That's not attractive. But what's the alternative? If the alternative is telling yourself, okay, it's going to take a long time and it's going to be a bit difficult, so I'm just not going to do it. Mm. just not going to go after what I want to do. Then the alternative isn't worth it. And I, I always loop back to this story, right? But there is a, uh, a book by somebody called Bonnie Ware, I believe her name is. And she was a palliative care nurse and she sat and asked people who were literally on their deathbed, who were about to die, what is your biggest regret? And they, the, the most common answer was something like, I wish I lived a life which was true to myself and not a life that others expected of me. And it's so easy to fall into living a life that you think you should live because it's a little bit easier rather than going after the things that you want to go after. Now imagine this, right? Imagine in 50 or 60 years time when each of us are literally on our deathbed, we can't go back and change a thing. Mm. If the data is anything to go by from Bonnie's research, we will wish that we lived the life that we right now have the opportunity to live. If that's not a reason to go and do it, even if it's slow and even if it's difficult, then I don't know what is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all too much that we look, everybody's guilty of it. I think we think, right, in 10 years, this is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to work hard for 10 years. Then I'll be able to have a lifestyle. I'll wait until I'm 50. And then actually, if you make lifestyle changes, a lot of the time, I can't speak for everybody because everyone's got, but, a lot of the time you can kind of get what you want at 50 now. If you want that bit of freedom to play golf a couple of times a week, or you want that bit of freedom to spend time with your kids, you don't have to wait till you're 50. You just have to change the way you live and prioritize what's important because society tells you that you've got to do it this way. You've got to work 40 hours. You've got to, you know, have a mortgage even. you. Actually, that's not the way it has to be at all. It's just not that way. I mean, do you know who James Smith is at all? He's a personal trainer. Yeah yeah. 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 And I've got a lot of respect for him because he just, he literally just lived, he does life on his own terms. He, he was a PT uh, in a gym and he was like, 
I can do better than this. He wasn't that good at school. Like he, he's, I've read his book and I little follow him on Instagram. And I know you do as well, don't you, Drew? Yeah. He, yeah. he just talks the truth. He says his, it's his truth. And then he's living in Australia, running his PT business from there. But he's only there because he's got himself there. He's not got lucky. He didn't, do you know what I mean? He, he just made it happen. He took accountability and he didn't like the alternative. He didn't like just working for someone as a PT. And he realised, actually, I'm capable of much more. A bit like what you were saying when we go back. So if you work for a business, they've got to pay the tax. And, you know, all that type of stuff on top of your wage. So actually, you've got to be worth more than what they pay you in the end. Oh, you can go and earn that yourself. A lot of people literally could go and earn that themselves. And that's what you've gone and done. That's what he's gone and done. But it's all about believing in yourself and not bowing down to societal pressures. And that is very difficult. Because if you start a business or you decide to it was like us when we started youtube group yeah it's embarrassing you know you're thinking what are people going to say about this video what are people going to be what are my mates going to think but the moment you think i do not care what those people think is the moment your life changes we've got because you live life on your yeah. terms you got, Drew. We got some roasting from students at first, didn't we? Oh, we got hammered. Teachers setting up a YouTube channel thinking we're uh, big time. But, yeah. It... We got hammered. We got absolutely hammered. But you know what? We let, Let's let's be honest, though. Let's go back a little bit further here. We did a YouTube channel before two teachers were set up a few years back. Yeah. And we were both quite overweight when we did it. And we were both. And we were back. We never deleted them videos, by the way. They're still on our channel. They're just private. And they got about 30 views, something like that. And we walk, look back at them and we cringe inside. But at the same time, we look back and say, you know what? We did it. We knew it was cringy, but we put them out there. And if we hadn't have done that, and then we stopped, and then we reevaluated, and we went back with this new model, if we hadn't done that, we'd have never felt like we did this time, because this time we really didn't care. And that allowed us to just go at it full, full force, didn't it? Yeah. And when people, we knew people were saying stuff to us and like, they like, oh, bless them, you know, they're trying. Actually, we believed in ourselves and we just didn't care. <laughs> and I think that changed our lives. A lot of students are very supportive though now. Just, just, sorry, just to put, I wanted to put that in because it sounded like all students were laughing at us. They are very supportive of us now. And like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, so we do appreciate their support, just in case two of them are listening, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, and you got to think as well, Drew. When they were getting only banned, do you know what I mean? Like they were, yeah. they were ripping us. Do you know what I mean? But and we we don't mind that because we rip. Yeah, but we just how <laughs> they did. They never thought that we'd get more than twenty views. And then you know yourself over time, like, and I'm not saying we're big time. We know where they were. We only got five k yeah. subscribers. We know we're near where we want to be. But the point is, all of a sudden, that mindset starts changing. People are actually, it's not as much of a joke as what it was. But it, we only got there, literally because we didn't care about other people's opinions. And I think that stopped so many people. What I find so exciting about what the two of you are doing and the way you're changing this narrative is that you operate within, dare I say, a, a system which encourages the kind of thoughts that we just called so bad, right? That you will only be successful when, right? You'll only be successful when you get your GCSEs because then you'll only be successful when you get your A-levels and then when you go to university, then when you graduate, then when you get your grad job, then when you get promoted, then when you get a house, then when you get married, then when you retire, then you're dead, right? Yeah. What I find so interesting about what the two of you are doing is that you're willing to show that yes, all of that stuff 
is good, right? It served you up to the point of becoming teachers. It was a necessity, but it's possible to just step to the left, take, take a step off that and do something that makes you happy now, right? Because maybe I'm making huge assumptions here. Maybe your idea of fulfillment before this was you get to 67 and you retire and you fuck off to a beach somewhere and that's happy. But you're what, 35 years ahead of that now because you did something unusual. And I like that you're showing directly to students that you can always have your cake and eat it. You can play the safe path up to a point, but when you're ready to take that step, just go for it. Appreciate you saying that, but yeah, that, I think that yeah, I think you have it nail on head with what we're trying to do. With to be fair, and I think we are, we do try and show them. Like I've spoke to them about like someone saying, I don't know whether to go to uni or not. I've said, what do you like doing? Why don't you do you like YouTube? You like blogging? Why don't you just write a blog for a bit, or do you like travel and, and, and vlog it, or just do something different? Don't like maybe trying to live my dream through them a bit, but like it's always supportive and wanting them to do just what they want to do. It, it's so... Nathan, life isn't as serious as it, it seems. No, no. It really isn't. And you can literally, I know it sounds stupid, within reason, you can kind of do what you want. If you want to literally, if you love football, just start a blog about football then. Let, me, let, me, let me ask you a question, not to flip the script here, but imagine that you are both the teacher you are today, but also you're a, a year seven student who's about to walk through the doors of your business studies class, right? And you're looking at year seven you in the face and um, up you look and as a teacher that you trust, what advice would you give to year seven version of you knowing what you know now? 100% just do whatever you want to do. And actually your grades are, will get you so far. Like I left school with five days, like A to C wise, I got me. I got my maths, my English, the important ones, and I got the five. And I think I maybe had a chip on my shoulder. But then like, I went to uni in the end and never, never, and I don't think anybody would have said I would have been a teacher and no one would have ever said, we weren't academics. We messed around at school. Yeah. But I think that helps us with being teachers because we understand most students and why they don't want to be there. We're sometimes academics and I don't want to, this isn't, a, but I think sometimes because if a teacher's been that academic, they struggle to understand the non-academics, whereas we're the opposite. We understand the non-academics because we were those people. Um, but absolutely, as much as it wouldn't have took me down this path, I would have just said, do what you want to do. And I love football and I love sport and I would have probably gone down the sporting route. But at the same time, does that mean it would have been a good route? It could have been terrible. We'll never know. Mm. But my my honest advice is just life in that series, just just go and enjoy it. <laughs> like it will be what it will be. I, I would have said very similar. Like do do what you want to do what you want to do, and don't don't be told you need to grow up as well. That, I think that's like the it's. I think again going back to James Smith, he said when people tell you to grow, don't grow up, it's a lie or something like that. Like it's it's not actually a thing like professionally the word professionalism oh i hate that word professionalism it's just it's i hate it boring. it's just becoming boring and too serious and taking yourself too serious and yeah I, basically work within a system be rigid do as you're told that's what professionalism is yeah. lose yourself don't lose who you actually are yeah. you know what i mean actually no stop it let's 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 let people be who they are Let's not judge too much. Let them be who they are. I just think we progress so much further. It's like a game, though, isn't it? It yeah. all is just a 
horrible system in that way. Talking on that though, Sean. I was just going to say. Yeah, I'm going to say. I'm going to say, flip it back to you. What would you say to your year seven self? God, I I asked the question. I don't know how to answer it. I would say very similar things. To be honest, believe in the fact that you don't need to round the edges of who you are as a person to fit in, right? You don't need to hide quirks. You don't need to pretend to be somebody or not because ultimately from both a being accepted as a person, but also from a bringing value to a business point of view, it is those things that make you weird and different that are the value. And so just be okay with being yourself and stop trying to pretend to be somebody or not because eventually when you arrive at happiness, it will be because you're being true to yourself. And I think that's it really, isn't it? It's just, it's understanding and it's basically echoing your points that, and maybe, maybe I'm bashing a system that I've been outside of for so long now that I'm talking out of my ass, but it seems that the formal education system tries to turn us all into nice little blocks that will fit through a block hole, right? And yes, there are outliers like Mr. Wilson, for example, I had an English teacher who I will always remember because he was, he reminds me of the two of you, actually, he was just happy to have a conversation about anything. Even if we spent an hour talking about something that wasn't English language, he was cool with that because he understood that you progress outside of a textbook as well as inside of it. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I just, in a system which seems to be pushing lots of people down one path through necessity, right? Because let's be honest, there isn't the resource to give the time and attention to every single person and understand their quirks, but understand that you can exist within that system, but you don't need to twist and bend to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And and, and now you've said that, it's made me rethink about my answer a little bit. One of the things you said right at the start of this podcast is when there was 12 of you on The Apprentice, there was two of you that weren't willing to kind of sway away from who you are and I think me and you have spoke about this recently Drew how there's been times when we like become who we we're not like we started acting in a way to fit and like we realized how miserable we became because we felt like we were forced to take that path in his early teaching career that was as well so we were, we were grown adults yeah yeah you, you just you, you it's because you you and I, I said it to Drew, I said, it, it weren't, it's not always a bad thing, that, though. So it's proven that we were able to adapt. We adapted to a system that wasn't us. We've adapted to education, which isn't naturally who we are. We're not, I don't think me and Drew are meant to be teachers. I don't think that was our calling. But we've, we've adapted to that environment. Actually, long term, does it make you happy if you're not true to yourself? And then it got to a point where we're like, no, we're not doing it anymore. Hard work. We're going to be who we are not being yourself in it it's hard work it is hard work and it, you're never going to be happy and i think that's the point and and what you said there about you've got to stick to your own valuables your own you you should have philosophies in life a philosophy in life you should have values and you should stick to them you should die on your own sword that's it for me that is the one thing if you believe in something you do it that is what i would say to myself i um a couple of weeks ago, I had Chris Williamson on and I asked him a very similar question to what we're speaking about now because he was this blue tick six-pack Instagram model on Love Island. He was the first person through the doors in the first series of Love Island. 
But he realized whilst there through what he calls a fatal dose of contrast, that that wasn't the person he was. The facade and the persona he he had built of being this kind of party boy, this guy who was out every weekend, this and that, who runs a promotion company for nightclubs. He said that you can mask yourself behind so many masks and so many personas that you actually forget who you are, right? And he's gone from being this guy on Love Island to now having people like Jordan Peterson, arguably the biggest name in YouTube culture on his podcast, right? They are so at odds. I think what's crucial is, yes, we all will pretend to be someone we're not at times, but much like what the two of you have done, when you realize you're going down that path, as we all inevitably do every few years for whatever reason, pull yourself back soon enough. Mm. Because if you fall under too many masks and we all know people who are like it, right? You you actually forget who you are and then trying to retrace your steps back to who you are, I imagine is an incredibly messy and difficult process. Yeah. I think it's liberating that once you realize who you are and you're like, well, I don't need to be someone else to make someone else happy about who I am. It's liberating because you feel free. You just see that with students who maybe one year as somebody who you know as adults you can look at and think yeah look he he's just self-conscious he doesn't know who he is or she is but then a couple of years later you see that actually they grow into themselves and you're like i'm really happy yeah yeah having them conversations i i always say most teachers who know business knowledge can teach you business like the theory and everything but like you said about that mr williamson the conversations are the things that not everyone can do like I have conversations with some of the students that I think if I'm not there, they don't have them conversations. Like they never come up. And obviously there's loads of great teachers out there, but that, that for me is the value that I feel I bring, not the, this is the marketing mix. Or like you said earlier about, you talked about Ada, didn't you? The desire and all that. Like, yes, I can tell you that, but showing an interest and having a conversation to me, that's the most valuable bit of my job. Anyway, I don't know what other teachers think, but that's me. And I think that's the point. Not everyone has to be you though, Drew. No. Like some teachers won't have that quality. Like some teachers won't be able to hold those conversations, but they'll also be able to do some stuff that you don't do very very well. A lot of other things. Yeah. And the point is we're all different. So if we all just stick to the strengths, actually we'll, We'll have a nice mix instead of all trying to fit this box and then we all become the same because that's not what anyone needs. No one needs the same. Everyone needs different qualities. They want to come to you for a conversation, but then they want to go to another tutor because maybe that tutor or if it were in work, that manager knows this topic much better or they can explain that. Do you know what I mean? Like there's different more compassionate than I am or a bit more caring. Like, yeah, maybe. Absolutely. And I think that's the point that you're trying to make. It's not that everybody should be able to hold a conversation with you. That's yeah. just you. That's yeah. just your strength. Wow. And other people have got theirs. But it's about being who you are. And I think that is the one thing that bothers me more than anything is how much societal pressures there are to become someone you're not. And that's like your Instagram generation. I mean, look, I mean, we're in his 30s now, aren't we, Drew? And I feel like we just kind of missed the Instagram generation, although it was there and Facebook was alive. And I remember when iPhones first came out, so we've lived through it, but we've also lived through the days of dial-up internet. And I just feel like we're able to see it from a different perspective where we don't post stuff just to make people give us likes. But I think there's that much pressure now to do that. 
And if you're not doing it, you're not in a circle. Does that make sense? There's so, an interesting thing that um, Ed Sheeran, although he's been away from any publicity for about two years now, he did a documentary film um, interview that was released in full on YouTube about a year ago. And he has a really interesting take on it, given that he has, I don't know what, 37 million followers, more success than you could shake a stick at. Like he in theory has everything, right? He, because of the pressures of social media, he not only stepped away from it, but now he doesn't have a phone. Like you cannot phone him. You cannot reach him. He has an iPad that he emails people on. And he has a really interesting view, which speaks to this idea of not feeling the need to fit in, which is when he sees somebody on Instagram post a nice picture of themselves he feels sorry for them he says he thinks shit they must be having a bad day if you've if you felt the need to have to take 15 photos pick the best one add some filters to it write a caption and post it for strangers on the internet to give you validation you must be having a bad day and so it's almost like just just breaking that cycle just trying your hardest no matter how good these apps are to just not get involved it's almost like you save yourself so that maybe don't go to the extreme of getting rid of your phone like Ed Sheeran did. But you know what I mean? It's like, it's a cycle that once you're starting to get that validation, it's very difficult to step away from it because that validation and that dopamine is addictive. Exactly. <laughs> How do you separate your business? Because obviously you'll be very proficient on Facebook, Instagram, all that. You know what you're doing. You're going to have the apps on your phone. It's working away. How do you separate work and your life? So I, from purely from a social media point of view, I have like an emergency second phone, which is the most first world problem you've ever heard, right? But I have a second iPhone. It's not with me right now. And based on my screen time and how I feel about my usage of apps at any given time, when it begins to get too much, I just offload every single social media app from my main phone, put them on this other phone and only use that other phone when I'm not in the office, when I'm not lying in bed, when I'm in these very particular situations, just because frankly... I don't, let's, let's say how it is, I don't have enough self-control and I know myself well enough to know that if I put them on my phone and say, I'll just check them between 2 and 3 p.m. when I'm eating my, no, like that's not going to happen. These apps are incredibly addictive and they're designed and iterated constantly by like the smartest data scientists on the planet. So I can't beat that. So I just offload it. It's a strategy, isn't it? It's, it's like um, Atomic Habits. Have you, have you read that? James Clear, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, it's like, don't put barriers in your way if you want to change a habit, but also like step back if you if you want to stop a habit, isn't it? So you know- Environment you design, yeah. It's like yeah. If, if you want to eat healthily, don't have loads of cake in your fridge because then your environment is actively pushing you towards and not away from the habit. It's exactly that. I mean, to be honest, if I check today, and this is going to be bad, but funnily enough, I also did this on my last- uh, interview like this oh it's not so bad today my screen time today is two hours and three minutes but that's because i've been on uh, video calls all day but when i start seeing that get to like four hours four and a half hours i'm like man i need to i need to just offload these apps and break that cycle for a while because if not it's just not a good way to live is it frankly it's just a waste of time yeah but it is different it must be difficult like drew's it's a great question to ask you because your job resolves revolves around facebook and social media so much it's a bit like two teachers. We, our Facebook, our Instagram, we were, we're on it a lot, aren't we? Yeah. So to then switch off and then that hit with a notification, it is, it's, that, it's that rush and it is addictive. And I think you know, we were literally talking about how we're going to structure our lives to stop that happening. And we were on about putting literally a schedule in place for working and then putting the phone on aeroplane mode. 
that's how serious we've been talking about it this week. Yeah. That's why I asked you because I wondered what you did because obviously you're doing it a much higher scale, like yeah, yeah, whole thing, isn't it? You're doing it for clients and all that. You you're in it. You know everything about it. So I, that's why I asked you. I just wondered how you managed to deal with it. The second phone thing, although people laugh when I say that, they're like, that's ridiculous. But honestly, the second phone thing, it's from, it's like a second line on my contract. I think it's like £29 a month um, for like an iPhone SE, I think it is, like the one with the button on it still. Um, easily, easily the highest ROI spend that leaves my bank account every month because yeah. it saves so many hours when the apps are on that phone and they're not near me. Because like you said, it's, with the best willing the will in the world you you close facebook you close instagram and then there's a notification and you're back in and it's 20 minutes later and i've i've never once watched somebody come off of an hour sitting on instagram and they say wow i really wanted to spend my time doing that right and that's coming from somebody who makes money from people doing that but yeah i just it, buy a second phone honestly yeah. you will earn back that time immediately i think, I think that's, that's a very good point though <laughs> when has anybody ever come off snapchat for 20 minutes, 10 minutes on Instagram. You don't even need to be an hour. They've never come oh, off. Five hours on TikTok. Oh, that were great. That were best 20 minutes. You know, they just come off and they're like, all oh, right. And then it's like the, the reboot. It's so strange, isn't it? But I do think there's going to be more uh, comes to light about all of this in, in the future, where there's it's has more serious light. I think there's, there's something more to it. Because like, even without a notification popping through, if my mind starts drifting and my phone's there, I sometimes go to it. Do you know what I mean? I, I like, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm slightly bored. I've not done anything for two minutes. I'll go and check that. You know, it's, it's, it's dangerous. There's some really um, interesting science going on. So I, I don't pretend to understand this more than like the very top level, right? But there is something in slot machines, like the best slot machines in Las Vegas, which are able to keep people sat down and spinning in the spinning. The, the, the psychological tool there is intermittent variable rewards, right? You pull the lever, it spins, there's that moment of anticipation and the dopamine is released then during the anticipation, whether or not you win, right? And it's no mistake that, um, just checking there's nothing on the screen that you shouldn't be seeing. Yeah. Um, this is just Twitter, right? For those who are listening, you won't see this, but you see that spinning circle there, yeah? Yeah. That doesn't need to be there. We yeah. have 5G internet. They are text-based files, which are a couple of meg max, right? You pull that down, Twitter could show you the content immediately but they don't they install an intermittent variable reward device which builds that anticipation i'm going to pull it will i see something new this time will it be a picture of my crush will it be a tweet from katie hopkins that i can bash and call her a dick do you know what i mean like yes. little tools like that that most people just don't notice because frankly why would they that's what keeps us hooked and that's why i don't think that i have the willpower to avoid it because frankly that thing's smarter than i am you're human aren't you at the end of the day yeah. that's it <laughs> I, I, that's what I'm saying. I struggle with it. I, I do my best. It's like food, like you said. I, I, it's the same thing. I'm just not that good. At it. I try to be disciplined. I try to be controlled, but I'm just human. I break that cycle. I'm not the most disciplined. I never say to be. So anyway, I want to know something else, Sean. We've got a scenario for you. So we're getting towards the end now. We've only got a few questions left. So if you had £10,000 right now, let's say me and Drew said, is £10,000 to invest in any business at all. It can't be marketing now. What would you do? I need to think about that one for a second. My own business or a business that already exists? You've got to be, it's got to be a startup. I see. Okay. 
No, you said invest. That's why I, I was thinking you, you said invest. Oh, did I say invest? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I'm with sorry. you. Yeah. I so would. You not listening to me? We're an hour and a half in and you're both in. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, yeah, sorry. It's got to be a startup. 10K. There's no, there's no risk. We're not bothered if you lose it. What are you going to do? Starting up a business. My answer to this is massively ironic because I have my own email newsletter, which I bang on about consistency constantly. And I've actually missed the last two weeks worth of emails because mm-hmm. I've just been busy. I would start an incredibly niche email newsletter. I would pull the £10,000 directly and immediately into ads to get signups to that email newsletter. I would write every single week or twice a week or three times a week about a very niche subject. I would build a core engaged um, and incredibly loyal audience around that email newsletter. And then I would monetize it because you know, we, we've spoken already about things like iOS 14 and Facebook and the the fluctuations that are happening in online advertising right now. There is nothing more powerful than having, uh, and funnily enough, Peter Watson's book that he's just finished writing, he's got a copy in hand yesterday is about this, it's that. called The Niche yeah. Influence. There is nothing more powerful than having a niche following of people who look to you as an authority on something. And why would I do it as an email newsletter rather than buy a delivery van and deliver for Amazon or something like tangible and more obvious? Well, because when you have an email newsletter or a podcast or a website or whatever it might be, you can just talk about what you love. You can just talk about what you find interesting and you need maybe, I don't know, 300 people to open those emails every week, 300 people to trust you as an authority. And suddenly you have income for life for doing Nothing other than talking about what you find interesting. So maybe that's not the the big extravagant answer, but if we're dialing in how to turn that 10K into the most happiness rather than the most revenue, well, then you could probably sustain yourself with a comfortable yearly salary just by selling ad space or selling products or Patreon or whatever it might be to that really committed base of email subscribers. And for that reason, I'm going to make sure that I get on with actually sending emails to my email list from this week onwards. (laughs) <laughs> no, but I think that's the point though. You, you you touched on it. How would you use that 10 grand to just comfortably give you a salary? But also you, because it's an niche email and you've got a core audience, you're helping people. And that is literally why we set two teachers up. We and if you end up making money out of it, then that's fantastic, isn't it? If you can help people and make money, why would you not? It's the best of both worlds, isn't it? Yeah, and this is the thing. The heart of it is not making money. The heart of it is helping people, and then money comes along at some point. The thing I thought when I was probably the age of your students, and I thought I need to get started in business, and it was around the time that the Social Network came out, that film about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. I was utterly convinced that I needed to build this like billion pound startup, like that was success in business. And the reason that I went quite boring with my answer just then. Um, because yes, of course, there are other things I would plow 10K into is because I think that there's a conversation that isn't being had about what success actually looks like in business. Like how, and I want to use the word relative here, but how relatively easy it is to make 30K a year in business, but be able to see your kids more. How relatively easy it is to make £27,000 a year, have your mortgage and like you said earlier, play golf twice a week. Like if you suddenly shift the conversation and don't get me wrong, I have big ambitions, but my ambitions are smaller than my desire to be happy. And if you shift the conversation from how do you build the next Facebook 
to how do you build the next little business that will sustain you and your family and give you more time to be happy so that you don't have those deathbed regrets that we spoke about. I think business is suddenly far more accessible to far more people. And when it's not such a huge insurmountable mountain to climb, I think more people will trust themselves to get started. I'm so happy you've said that because that's the point of this podcast. It's not just me as a teacher saying it. It's people in business who are doing it. And I'm right happy with that answer because you've literally said about the niche market and 20 grand a year, you, you've said exactly what I was saying probably 12 hours ago to somebody. They were like, I don't know what to do. And they were like, well, what do you like doing? We couldn't really think about what... The, Oh, but I was like, do something niche. Like you might be talking about a series on Netflix and you might be sending out, uh, uh, I said an email about it and you might then talk about it on a podcast and you might get, like you said about Patreon, you might get people then who just listen, pay for you through Patreon. But you might only make 20, 25 grand a year, but you've got the life you want. And I'm right, I'm right, I'm just right after you said it because that's exactly what I was saying today. And we exactly, yeah. All, all, honestly, Sean, that is, it's a, it, we've been going from a drastic period of change, me and Drew, like, like with, yeah. with our mindset, and like, we're all like, yeah, well, what we want to do, and it's like you said earlier, I want to get to 50, I want to be mortgage free, 60, whatever. But then it's the realization that actually you can, what, what are you going to do once you're mortgage free? Can you not just do those things now if you just change your lifestyle a little bit? And maybe run a business that allows you, maybe you don't take as much home, but you don't do as much extravagant stuff, but it allows you to do things that you want to do right now. And I really think you can, it's achievable. I don't think you have to sit in a corporate career earning a good salary for 40 years to then get your pension and then enjoy your life. I genuinely think you can earn less. Have a more comfortable life, do the things you want now. I, 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 I think that's just what we're going through. And like what you just said there, Sean, it it does really hit the nail on the head. The first few years of running this business through the necessity of having to pay everything before ourselves, I literally paid myself for like two and a half years, 600 pounds a month. Mm. 600 pounds a month when my mates were, I say mates, like people I saw on Instagram in my age group were going out and spending like 300 pounds on a t-shirt and this and that and going on holiday. I was no less happy then than I am now. I think it's an... I want to make money for reasons that aren't necessarily directly related to just happiness, but I think it's a myth to suggest that the more money you make, the happier you get. And not to repeat my previous point, but just changing that paradigm so that people see business as something that gives them freedom and some money makes yeah. it way more accessible. Yeah. Makes sense. I think that comes back to Go on, Drew. Sorry. No, just just saying what it, what it just said. Yeah, it's accessibility. It's not having to think of the next big thing that's going to be the next Gymshark, is it? It's it's the email newsletter. It's the little thing that can earn you 20 grand a year doing something you love, talking about a passion. But it's not just doing the thing you love. It's doing the thing you love that helps people. The money then comes, and it's just enough money to help you then live the life on your terms. Like you, What did you say, Sean? You said... Your ambition isn't as as big as your desire to be happy. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I have big business ambitions, but do I put those ahead of trying to be happy in the moment? Three years ago, maybe. Today, absolutely not. Yeah, Love it. Very interesting. I think it's a good way to go on to us. 
last, like, I know you appreciate you spending all this time showing me us. Like, it, it's fun like, doing this. Like, it's like a Joe Rogan one, this, isn't it? <laughs> Super yeah, it just goes on. Um, but we, we normally do a final three, so it's just quick fire. You can talk as long as you want about it. I was going to say, I'm dreadful at short answers. <laughs> like, sort of, we ask up the same three questions to everyone who comes on, so it's just... Again, it gives us these questions are designed to help us a bit selfishly and people listening. But like I have, I've recently read read something that recommended, etc. So it's just that kind of thing. So first one, I'll just give it away a bit. What book has had the greatest impact on your life? I've literally and probably will one day considered getting the chart that James Clear made on the back of the idea from The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. I've literally considered getting that tattooed. There's a chart which shows that it's what we spoke about earlier. If you get 0.1% better every day for a year, you're yeah. 37.7 times better. If you get 1% worse because of the opposite of compounding, you're 0.03% worse, right? That chart, that understanding that it's not about quantum leaps, it's about tiny consistent actions has literally informed the four years of life every single day since I read that book. Brilliant. I think, again consistency is something we've only just come across at our age really aren't we like with i'm 31 alex is just just about to turn 31 and exactly what you just said we you realize like just doing little things every day makes a major difference doesn't it uh, well i think we first learned about compounding didn't we drew so that's what it is it's like compound interest but in life and when we learned about compound interest it was like why does everyone not know about compound interest and how that actually impacts your money. Everyone just thinks you put your money in a bank, you get 1% interest every year. And that's what you're told to do. It's again, it's listening to just society and the way you're meant to do things. But once you learn what compound interest can do to your money, then you look at your life and you learn what actually a compounding effect can have on life if you continue. It's not about massive. That's the point. You don't have to go out and do something showy. You don't have to achieve this mass. It's just about being consistent Sticking to a plan, being disciplined where you can, slight improvements. All of a sudden, you look back and you're a completely different person to what you were a year ago. And then you look back in five years, and it's just it, it's it's crazy how quick life can change for the better if you take that mindset. I'm gonna read that. What what were it called again, Sean? The slight edge. Slight edge. Yeah, because yeah. we've both not read that. We've read a lot of books, haven't we? Both read the same books. Like we tend to recommend them to each other but we've both not read that have we no the only thing i'd add to uh what you just said is that with this whole what is the alternative thing right that time those two years for example they're going to pass anyway so why not just be consistent with something because you're going to be in two years time you're going to be 33 anyway why not have put in four minutes of effort a day to be a fundamentally different person what is four minutes it's so easy to do yeah i i agree i think i'm i'm going to apply that to me to me fitness next i think just like uh, it's such such small thing you can do and it's going to make a massive difference looking back in two years isn't it just in it can just apply it to everything it's so well it's like that isn't it you apply it to your fitness let's say you wake up or you finish working it's like i meant to do a 10k today but you really cannot be bothered yeah if you think right okay that 10k is an achievement when you can't bother instead of doing that you just go out and do a 10 the 2k yeah, you've still gone out and done something. Yeah, you've still achieved something. You moved slightly forward. Yeah, and that's the point, isn't it? If you, if you applied that concept every day, all of a sudden you've done more than more than ten k anyway. You know, over time, and 
I, I think it's it's so important to take that approach in life. Yeah. And once you figure it, it like clicks. And you're like, ah, I get it. So that's interesting. So moving on to the next one then, Sean. What things in your life and then business are you not willing to compromise on? Sorry, just bouncing the phone call there. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest one for me, and it bleeds over into both, is honesty. Honesty both through um, not lying, but also not omitting information. I think it's so important from a business point of view, from a friendship point of view, from a family point of view, from a relationship point of view, to just be honest. It's it's so easy to not be honest, right? But I don't need to explain what happens when you lie and it catches up with you and all this stuff. I just think that, and it kind of comes back to the Jocko Willink extreme ownership thing, right? Just tell the truth, whatever the truth might be and deal with it because you will deal with the truth eventually one way or another. So why not just what is it they say about like the eat the frog idea, like doing the most difficult thing first. Like um, we spoke a few months back, we had a advertising industry veteran um, and we paid him for a couple of hours of his time. And he basically just offloaded 25 years worth of industry knowledge um, to us. And he has this saying of, I think the turd on the table. He's like, imagine you walked into a meeting room and there was a big shit on the table. Like, you're not going to continue the whole meeting when there's a shit on the table. You're going to deal with it, right? And yet we, in business more so than anything else, you see people who will obfuscate and kind of step around and do a bit of a dance before they eventually tell you something that if they were just honest about, it would have saved everyone two hours, loads of difficulty, and you would have been busy working on solutions. I think that to compromise being honest is to compromise being good at business. You spot on. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um the final one then is what um what's the best piece of career advice you've ever received? That's a good one. I can't think of anything. Let me think. I really don't know. I've never really had direct mentors in as much as I've never had like a, a person 20 years my senior who I've sat down with and had advice from. And of course, in school, like the careers officer was, he was lovely, can't remember his name, but he was basically a bloke who was like, yeah, go to uni, go to uni and do a thing. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. But let me answer this question slightly differently, but hopefully people can get value from this, right? Rather than seeking out a mentor who could sit with me and give me advice, I've used the internet, a tool that we all have to find mentors who don't even know that they're my mentors. People who put out podcasts, people who put out little tweets and tweet threads and ideas, authors who write books, all of these people who have literally and really fundamentally changed the person I am relative to when I started in business through the advice that they put out into the world. And so in the absence of me having been given any direct career advice, what I'd say is even if you don't have somebody to turn to, because maybe you're from... I don't know, an area of the country, a town where there aren't, you look around and there aren't business owners, you know, your peers and their parents and your parents and whatever, maybe they aren't the kind of, they aren't in the kind of careers that you want to go into. 30 years ago, that would be a big fucking problem, right? Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, if there was nobody for you to ask advice from in your immediate vicinity, 
well, then you didn't get that advice. Today, it's like seven words and a hitting of enter away from knowing whatever you want. And so I can't think of any career advice I've been given, but I found a lot of advice from people who don't even know they've given it to me. So nothing specific, but people who you follow and listen to. And and I, we um, this podcast hasn't been released yet. Um, it gets released next week. Uh, but do you know a guy called Jordan Syatt? I don't. Big personal trainer. Um, it, do you know Gary V? Yes, yeah, yeah. He was Gary V's personal trainer for, what was it, three years, Drew? Oh, is he the, um, the <laughs> he's not going to appreciate me describing him as this, but I know Mike Vacanti. Is he the, yeah. the, the bold one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they've just so, wrote a book together, yeah. I love Mike, so he must be great. So Drew, just to put this in perspective, we actually had him on the podcast yesterday, last week. So he's got like 750,000 followers on Instagram and Drew religiously follows him. I didn't. I didn't really know Jordan before the podcast, but through religiously, like this guy's amazing. He, he, I love him basically because you love Gary Vee as well, don't you, Drew? Yeah. Um, so anyway, when we got on the podcast, Drew were like, "Oh, basically, I absolutely love what you do." And this guy, he had no idea. He obviously has no idea who you are, and no. that's the point. Drew's got a men. What you're saying there, Drew has got a mentor in him, and he doesn't have a clue who Drew is. No, but I felt like I knew him. It was so strange. Like I felt like I knew him. I was sat there looking at this person. I look at his stories and everything, but he had no clue who I were. He'd never even seen my face before. So it it goes to. I think what you've said is you know what you just said about not having any advice. That is great advice. What you've just given, like there's a wealth of people out there now, and I would fully agree with exactly what you've said. Is books and things like that have changed my life and was it after school when you started doing this or were you like that in school because for me i never i don't think i read a book till like 28 basically the same yeah i thought reading was the, and it, again not to blame education because it was of course partially my fault as well but i thought reading was ridiculous right we read like of mice and men in school and i thought well i did yeah. not need to know that what like what was that book about but that I think is exactly probably... what i'm sorry to interrupt you but that is exactly you know when you start talking about books all i was thinking is lenny and mice and men <laughs> that's all that's, and that I, I i'm exactly the same i was never interested in books and it's because that's no interest to me i don't care about of mice and men but if they put books in like what we know now but anyway sorry to interrupt i just thought that was funny that you you mentioned this is this is a tangent within a tangent, but I've been thinking for the longest time. Like I'm just gonna somebody can use this as a business idea if they want. I'm giving this away unless I go and do it. Um, the pandemic got in the way of me trying to pursue this, but you know how I spoke earlier about how I went into that school who's related to my school, and I was I was just really fired up about the idea that there were people there who did business studies and were interested in business. I would love nothing more than to launch a business called something like the Business Studies Book Club, where once a month or once a quarter a curated book is given at the cost of the school and they can pass on to the parents if they want or whatever. I don't know how this funding stuff works, but like you get into the hands of active and switched on business studies students, books that people like the three of us know change lives because we're living it, right? And then because of the buying power, because you for your arrangement with 300 schools across the UK are buying, I don't know, 4,000 copies of James Clear's new book, students ask questions based on the book and the author answers it right that would change so many lives because if there's one thing that changed my life it was reading non-fiction books 
but that was never shown as a, an avenue to progress in school. No. It was always either textbooks or it was, dare I say, nonsense fiction. I know there's going to be somebody in the comments saying that I can't call with mice and men nonsense, but frankly, what did it give me in life? It gave yeah. me nothing. It probably put you off, to be honest. It probably put you off books yeah. because you couldn't relate to it at all. And what's really strange about what you're saying is we've just, like earlier you were talking about newsletters, an email newsletter. We literally are on our third edition. We, we started it three weeks ago. We started a business studies newsletter. And we just thought that gives so much value to our audience, niche audience, business studies. And one of the, one of the first things we put on that newsletter was a book. So it's a book that we've read, we review, we put our own, we called it a two teachers rating and we rate it out of a hundred. And because we just think it's so important. So kind of the two things that you've just mentioned there earlier, a newsletter and now a book club kind of is, is kind of where we're, we're trying to, we believe in it so much that we're kind of trying to get to that anyway. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I think the only other thing I'd add into that whole wider thought from a minute ago is and this is an underrated thought that it's so important to be really discerning when it comes to who you follow online. Like it's so tempting to just follow little mix and Gaz from Geordie Shaw and think that that is like the, the, the upper limit of what you can learn from the internet. But if you're really picky with not only who you follow, like trying to follow people who put out good advice and so on, but if you see someone whose tweet pisses you off, and I don't mean pisses you off because you slightly disagree with their opinion on Brexit or whatever it might be, but actually you're like, no, this person is just putting out negativity after negativity. Just unfollow them. Follow people who give you advice, who give you knowledge. For all of the downsides of social media that I've spoken about, it's taught me more, dare I say, than school ever did. And so I think that, yes, reading books, but also more accessibly and cheaper, particularly for younger students who perhaps don't have the money to go and buy books, just follow 10 to 12 Twitter accounts on a separate Twitter account yeah. of people who put out free advice, who, you know, they've been in careers 30, 40, 50 years. They've taken that long to learn this stuff. And then they're going to, in 280 characters, give it to you for free. Um, it's funny you've said that as well, because... I feel like I can relate to that as well because I, I don't follow anyone I know on Instagram. I only follow the positive things. So my whole feed on Instagram is positive people, people giving me advice, like daily stoicism and stuff like that. I don't have, I don't even, I don't think I even have Alex maybe. Like I don't have Alex showing me a picture. Of I don't post, or, so you or, wouldn't or get nothing like, from me. I don't have anything of anyone, like not my wife, nobody who I know because I don't want to see the dog. I want to see some free, positive, mind-changing stuff that you can see every day. And I have a, um, I have a separate Twitter account, which um, the username is something like Sean G-A-T-F because I called the little project in my mind good accounts to follow, G-A-T-F uh, underscore or something. And when I'm scrolling Twitter habitually, and I'm like, what am I doing? Like, what is all this nonsense? I'll just switch accounts. Yeah. And then I've got like 12 of the smartest minds on the planet just, and suddenly yeah. what would be a negative use of a phone turns into an educational one. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. I think that's good advice as well for students that we obviously talk to a lot. So thanks, Sean. Yeah. I really think is really well. Yeah, we've, uh, I think that's his record, Sean. You've got his record for the longest podcast so far. <laughs> Bang on nine o'clock. Bang on two hours. Yeah. Decent. Decent. We're, we're into Rogan realms now. Well, should we start Rogan with conspiracy, conspiracy theories next? <laughs> that up. 
getting to that. So um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking time. It's it's really been insightful and just good to hear. Yeah, yeah no, thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's been nice to sit on the other side of a microphone and answer some questions. But you know what? This hasn't even and I always hate podcasts that feel like interviews, right? This has just felt like a conversation, just three people who kind of share some experiences and ideas, just chatting. I yeah, I'd love to do this again in a year or so because this has been great. Yeah. 100 well, percent sure. Yeah, we'd definitely do it. I I have rating, I've really genuinely enjoyed it. Um, just for people obviously who are listening as well, like what's best place to find you for some wisdom on their uh, good good accounts to follow pages now. Uh, so Twitter and Instagram, Spooner Sean, and you can search Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That's my podcast where uh, every other week I talk into a microphone like this for half an hour. And then uh, once every two weeks, I have a guest on and try and extract some of the lessons that they've learned from their life and selfishly take them for me to learn from. Just before you go then, who's been your best guest on the podcast? It's a tie between... Bear with this is going to be like a two minute answer in itself, but why not? Let's let's push up this uh, this record yeah. long episode. Joe Rogan, come on. <laughs> it's a tie between and two separate reasons for this, right? Chris Williamson, because when I speak about people who don't know they're my mentors, but they are, I latched on to his podcast Modern Wisdom when it was like thirteen episodes in. Um, I was actually looking for a video about behind the scenes of Love Island, and he did a video on that, as you would imagine, because that's how you get people through the door. I've probably listened to 250 plus episodes of his podcast. I've learned insane amount from him. So to have the chance to have sat down in this very seat a couple of weeks ago and spoke to him for an hour and a half and asked the questions that I've always wanted to ask during those 250 episodes, that was incredible from a selfish point of view. And then the episode that's out in a couple of weeks from now is with a guy, you may have seen him on YouTube, the police interceptor, Ben Pearson. Have you seen his videos? They're popping up right now. Done a a million views in six weeks. It's insane. So he was, you know, the Channel 5 program, Police Interceptors. Yeah. Yeah. They just like drive around, smash into shit, like great program. Um, So he was in, I think, South Yorkshire Police for 19 years. And um, he had to leave because he was diagnosed with uh, anxiety, depression, and complex PTSD because the shit that he had to see and deal with day after day after day as a police officer is stuff that frankly nobody can deal with if that makes sense because we who do we call when there is some extreme shit that we can't deal with sitting down with him right this podcast is out next week i recorded it the other day i think it's going to be my favorite when i listen back to it i haven't listened back to it yet because it had everything the first half was my inner six-year-old being like tell me about the blue light chases and it was sick but then the second half such an incredibly important moral that he has now that he's out of the police he's campaigning with people like the shadow home secretary and writing books about the fact that we need to support the people who support us right when you're just to put it as he put it when you're having to scrape a body up from a road with a shovel into a bin bag like you need more help than just going home and being told to deal with it and so i think that the conversation that we had there because it's so important, even though it's detached from my life, like that's never going to impact me, but because it's so important, I think that might just be the Chris Williamson episode when it comes out. Who knows? Hopefully a lot of people hear it and get get that message from it though as well. And I think that's what's important about podcasting and having these conversations, isn't it? You never know where they're going to go. We couldn't have imagined what we'd have been talking about today. We write a few questions and we never end up just talking about them, do Alex? Yeah. No, we, we literally just 
we 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 know as guests slightly. We 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 do a bit of research on you, and then we think, right, what questions would we get that gives audience value? But what we've learned, and you've probably learned it yourself on the podcast. Again, we're not podcast hosts. We're just two lads from Yorkshire, you know. But just by doing, we've just like when we first started doing it, we were so rigid, and then we've just learned to just actually just natural, naturally questions appear. We had to see some paper, didn't we, in front of us, and we were like, oh yeah. We had to try and stick to it, and then you just learn to actually the com. You just have a conversation, and uh, again, that comes back to everything we've been talking about, isn't it? Just go and do it. Uh, but no, I'll we'll, we'll I'll definitely give that a listen as well. When that come, when's that coming out? That episode, Sean, seventh of May, I think. Seventh of May, yeah. So I'll, not, I'll not, give that a listen. This Friday, next Friday. So yeah, it'd be a it'd be a banger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I look forward to it. So great. Well, thank you ever so much, Sean. No, thank you both. Cheers. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah. Enjoy rest of your Cheers, night mate. anyway. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Have a good one, Sean. Cheers, thanks. Goodbye, mate. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.